This book is my all-sufficient guide for faith and conduct. Living water changes everything one life at a time. Praise the Lord, it does. And the story that we are going to be talking about in our character study this morning is the life of Saul who became Paul. Saul is who he was. And the Saul of who he was had absolutely a totally different life than the person we read in the scripture that wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, the Apostle Paul. What we really need to understand is that God has not changed from that moment, we're going to talk about this story, when he knocked Paul off of his donkey onto his behind and said, I am Jesus who you are persecuting. So we're going to talk about this. We're looking at a, a particular a scripture, but before we even get to that, we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 9, verses 19 through 22. So you can turn there, get ready, we're going to read. Uh, but before we do that, I just want to give a little bit of background into this story. Saul is who this is talking about, and Saul was a person who was a Pharisee. He was someone who was very learned man. He was someone who was very uh, acquainted with all of the, uh, the, the Jewish customs, and yet he himself was, a, was a, a Roman citizen. He was very astute and learned. And he was a person who was absolutely hating what was happening with Jesus Christ. It says in the scripture that he vehemently, he really, he with all of his might opposed Jesus and his name. He hated anybody who was associated with the name. So much that he literally began persecuting them. Everyone in the church that heard that Saul was coming was petrified. Because he was someone you didn't want to have at your door or meeting. If he was there at the meeting or he was there because of your faith, this new thing that was happening, he even went as far as to get orders that he could drag you before the Sanhedrin. He, he did some amazing things. People were scared of him. Uh, and so we, we find that this is the person Saul. And then we read... In Acts is where we are, Acts 9. But in Acts 7, it talks about the stoning of a person named Stephen. Stephen was a person that was full of the Lord and full of his Holy Spirit. He was to the top with Jesus. And uh, Stephen began speaking to the Pharisees and Sadducees the name and the message of Jesus. He poured out the whole message. And when he got done, they were so angry at him 
that literally the Bible says they were grinding their teeth as he spoke. That's what that means, to gnash your teeth. It really means to grind them. You're so angry, you're just grinding your teeth. That's how angry they were. And the scripture says that as they drug Stephen off in chapter 7 of verse 59, it says as they were dragging him off that Saul was right there giving approval for his death. An amazing thing. So there he is. He's not only persecuting the church, he is there really at the murder of Stephen. They stoned him. Stephen looks up as he's being stoned in chapter 7 and says, Lord, don't commit this sin to their charge. I think that had a profound effect on Saul who became Paul. And then Paul goes on and listen to what it says. I want to read this starting at 59. I know I'm giving some background, but I want to read this. I believe it's pertinent. Acts chapter 7, I want to start at 59. And they went on stoning Stephen as he called upon the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. And Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. And some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Wow. Saul was an entirely different person than the person we read about, Paul, who wrote the scriptures. What happened to him? Well, what happened to him was he was going to Damascus to persecute the church. And on the way to Damascus in chapter uh, 9, it talks about that Jesus encountered him on the road. And there, Jesus revealed to him himself and literally strikes him with blindness. He can't see. And he tells him, listen, continue to go. I've spoken to a man named Ananias who's going to come to you, Paul, and pray over you and, and, and heal you. Now, I don't know about you, but if you've ever heard of, of, of transformational stories, there is no other transformational story more powerful than Saul to Paul. But what you need to understand is that God is still God today as he was back then. 
I know some of you who are praying for relatives, for friends, and you may think, oh, you don't understand this person. You've never met. I mean, this guy, he's not just saying, I really don't want to go to church. He hates Jesus, Christianity. He hates those who serve Jesus. I understand. Those are the kind Jesus loves. God doesn't have a problem with them. God is going to allow them to be confronted to a place where they have to make a choice, but God's not worried about it. God wasn't, wasn't up there wringing his hands over Saul when he was out doing those things, thinking, oh, what am I going to do? May I say to you that whomever you are praying for, God's not wringing his hands thinking, oh, I wonder how he's going to be saved. God knows. God knows what needs to be done. He knows how to do it. And he will use you if you'll allow him. And if you think that, well, if it depends on me, no, if you won't do it, God will find another person. God will not be bound by what you are doing. <laughs> but God will use you if you'll allow him. And that's a joyous place to be. <laughs> if you've never been in that spot, I challenge you. You will receive more joy than you know what to do with. You haven't lived till you get on page with God. You think you're fulfilled at your job? You ain't seen nothing. You think you're fulfilled in your family? Ha! What are you saying, pastor? There's something wrong with my family? No, I'm saying until you get together with God, you will be disappointed. Everything in this life will come to an end and you will be unsatisfied. We talked about it in class this morning. But when you get on page with God, you will experience the joy where Jesus talks about rivers of living water out of your belly. So let's stop trying to fulfill ourselves with our jobs. Pastor, you use the word family. Yes, because even good things are not God things. I've had people that thinks that they can save people through sports, that they can save people through activities, that they can save people through all kinds of good things. Guess what, guys? Good things still send good people to hell. <laughs> wow, Pastor Brian, why would you make a statement like that? Because it matters to God. <laughs> And so you need to understand God's not wringing his hands. God's got a plan. And his plan is just as simple as when he laid it out to Ananias and said, go pray for him. And if you read in there, Ananias said, I'm not going. I've heard about this man. I'm not going to pray for him. And God says, I've appointed him, you go. And he went. 
That's where we're going to pick up the story. It's right after uh, Ananias comes in and prays for Paul, and he opens his eyes and fills him with the Holy Spirit. Praise the Lord. <laughs> and that's what I want to talk to you about. I want to talk to you about that, that conversion experience. Let's read verse number nine, 19, chapter 9 of Acts. And he began, and he took food and was strengthened. Now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus. And immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues, saying he is the Son of God. And all those hearing him continued to be amazed. Those who uh, continued, I'm sorry, I lost my play, continued to be amazed and were saying, is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on the name? And he who come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. God is in with all of what you have that you're worried about. He knows. He even knows those things that you don't tell him that you think you're hiding from him. He knows. He knows that you worry. He knows that you have people at work that you just think, man, they already think I'm a fruitcake. He knows. But guys, the same power that saved this man Saul is the same power that still saves people today. We like to believe that we have become so sophisticated that if we just somehow change the gospel a little bit, that we can make people follow Jesus, and then somehow when they catch it by osmosis, that they'll somehow serve God. To use a 80s phrase that will, that will date me, but some of you will appreciate it, gag me with a spoon. See, I knew some of you would appreciate that. <laughs> the point is, God does not need our help. God needs our obedience. God doesn't need us to think that we have gotten so wonderful and so educated that we've learned to speak the gospel differently and more professionally than he. You say, oh, yeah, but Pastor Brian, I know. I've come up with the same excuses and reasons. But God says, would you just be obedient? Because, see, we, we like to believe that if we had something to do with it, we could somehow take credit for it. And I believe until we say, Lord, we're just going to take you at your word and listen to what verse number 21 says. Number 21 says, And all those hearing him continued to be amazed, saying, Is not this he who in Jerusalem destroyed 
those calling on this name, do you know what? Although we have a long list of people who we may say, stop wasting your time. They're not out of reach of God. We say, ah, oh, forget them. God says, I still got them on my radar. I still got them on. I wonder how many in the church back then had written Saul off. I wonder how many said, here's a guy who really, God, you need to zap. You remember when the sons of Zebedee asked Jesus to call down fire? They probably were calling it on him as well. <laughs> That's our human nature, isn't it? I mean, come on, Lord, this guy is causing damage. This guy needs to be taken care of. He's, he's killing people who are serving you. Those are the type of people God loves to grab a hold of their heart, turn their world upside down, and set them on fire for his glory. God is still a person who restores lost causes. And that's my first point. You're not wasting time. I know our flesh says, stop wasting time. The Spirit of God says, as long as there's breath, there's hope. As long as there's breath, there's hope. Saul was not just passive in his not wanting to serve Jesus. He was adamantly opposed. I want to point another person out to you. Luke chapter 19. Read, uh, write these verses down, Luke 19, verses 1 through 10. But I'm going to specifically reference Luke 19, 2 right now. Because it talks about a man named Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was two things going against him that everybody said, stop wasting your time. Number one, he was a tax collector. Number two, he was rich. He was a rich tax collector. And everybody said, man, he's gone. Let him alone. And Jesus has an encounter with him. Just like he did with Saul. Just like he will with your Saul, whoever he or she may be. God still transforms people's lives. I may not know what to do. You may be in a spot where you don't know what to do. God knows what to do. He believes in lost causes. That's number one. God believes in those who are lost, those who we have given up on. God does not come to a point where he says, stop wasting time. As long as there is breath, there's hope. Well, let's talk about what happened, because I believe that this is important, too. Sometimes we, we I think, say, well, yeah, we're going to get them saved, but, you know, they get saved, and, and, uh, and, and they're going to have to really just, again, somehow catch this Jesus thing that we're doing by us copying us. That, to me, sounds like conformity. 
not transformation. I, it concerns me in my country. I am concerned and gripped with many, I believe, in the church who have started to come and they're conforming, but there's been no transformation. They have maybe even a form of religion or a form of godliness, but deny its power. And I believe, uh, hear my heart, I'm concerned because when we take the power of the cross and the power of the gospel out of it and we think we can create, we can make, we can do these things, Jesus, if you just get out of our way, what we would do, I think we're in dead trouble. Because you look at the life of the Apostle Paul, he was a new person. It shocked people. It literally shocked them. You want to see a very strange thing? Give a, a little girl a most, there's always a general rule, but you give them a caterpillar and they're like, Ugh. Give them a butterfly. Oh, yeah, they're all. <laughs> it's true. A caterpillar, a caterpillar is like, pfft. but give them a butterfly, big difference. But the fact is, God does transformational change. And I'm not doing a play on words here. I'm saying specifically, and this is one of the things that we at North Lake Church have said we believe. We believe in the transformational power of God. And it doesn't come by osmosis. It comes by an encounter with the living God. It comes when you have an encounter with Jesus and he then fills you with his spirit. There is an encounter that changes you from the inside out. And it changes who you are. And all of a sudden people look around and they say, what happened? Isn't this the person isn't this the lady that used to do this and that? And here she is. How can she be doing this? The transformational power of God. That's how it happens. I'm not saying that there isn't a need for teaching and discipling. The Word of God makes that clear. But I am concerned. I love missions. I have people talk to me about that I need to be on the mission field. But I have said, I'm gripped and grieved for my people. 
they're lost. And some are even lost in the church because they have found religion, they have changed a little bit about what they do to make themselves feel better, and there's never been transformational change. God has not come to conform you. God came to transform you. He came to transform you from the inside out. So you can become a new person just like Saul, who later became Paul, and this is a biblical pattern. If you look at Scripture, oftentimes when God does a major work, you find that a person has a new name. I believe that comes on purpose because we have too much of a tendency to go back to the old. And so God says, no, 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 don't even consider, just consider that person dead. You're not even who he is. <laughs> I know I'm not telling you I'll go down to the courthouse tomorrow and change your name, okay? <laughs> but I am telling you, get it spiritually. You are not who you were. When you receive Jesus, the scripture makes it clear that it is a miracle inside that you can't create, you can't conform, you can't push it in somebody. It is a miracle of salvation. And God does it in the hearts of people. He takes out that heart of stone, gives you a heart of flesh, and then places his spirit in you. And it makes you a transformed new person. That's what happened to Paul, or now we're talking about Saul. It says, he stayed after Ananias prayed with him several days with the disciples. Well, now that's a good thing. I was just, I, I mean, the Bible talks about that, that, that when you're transformed, I mean, you, you need to start doing the things of God. You don't go back to the old way. So he was there with the disciples who were at Damascus, and it says immediately he began proclaiming Jesus. Transformation is immediate. When you receive Jesus, you know there's a difference. All right. Then... Let's look at verse number 22. Acts 9. Verse number 22. But Saul kept increasing in strength. One thing that you will understand, those who truly come to Christ and have their hearts transformed it means nothing about perfection. They are imperfect people. They're going to fall down. They're going to have bad days. They're going to have bad times. But you will see a continual strengthening because his spirit now resides in them. There's a difference. There is a marked 
difference. And I know I'm, I'm, I'm pausing here, but I'm telling you there is a difference between creating religious followers or people who are disciples of Jesus. God doesn't want religious followers. He wants children that have been transformed, born of the Spirit of God. He wants those people. And when those people come to him, he begins to strengthen them moment by moment. You don't, you don't maybe see it right away, but as they continue, he continues to strengthen them. And then it says, and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving. That's a divine demonstration. No one has a better witness than the witness God's given you. No one. I, I, don't, I know sometimes we, we uh, elevate other people's witness because we think, oh man, if they, they've really got a testimony. No one has a testimony like your testimony. Nobody. Nobody can explain what God did in you like you can. No one can take that away. And though they looked and they were confounded, it was a proof. He began proving that Jesus is the Christ. Don't you know part of that divine demonstration was them just saying, who is this guy? I mean, this is the guy that used to, I had one of those occasions I told you about that part of, part of me having an open Facebook, number one, is I want accountability on Facebook. <laughs> and if I can't put it out to everybody, I don't need to be on there. <laughs> you say, ah, oh, but pastor, what people are going to find out about you? Whatever they find out about me, I guess they're going to have to see <laughs> But I, I have it, and I got a hold of this one particular gentleman in high school that uh, was pretty shocked when I called him and said, hey, I, I need to talk with you. I met him for coffee and, and pie, which, of course, you know, isn't, is, isn't surprising to you. <laughs> but in the midst of sitting down and just having a conversation with him, uh, I said, I began talking to him about how I treated him in auto shop, how I treated him in class, how I belittled him, and I knew he was a Christ follower. And I had to humble myself, and I said, I need to ask you to forgive me. And he said, man, I, he said, I know, I guess I have some vague recollection, but he had let it go. But I needed to speak to him. The transformational power of God does it to where people see something's different. He did say, I can tell something's different about you than when you were in high school. <laughs> Praise God. <laughs> Praise God. That kind of change is a testimony 
to everybody who looks. And if there isn't that transformational change, then I, I challenge us in a very humble way, because I don't want to be, I'm not accusing, and neither do I want to be condemning, but I'm asking, if you see very little difference in your life serving God now than when you were in the world, what's wrong? What's wrong? Because something's wrong. Because God brings transformational power and change. All right. So then we move on to this. The greatness of God. Do you know in the book of Psalm 147.4 that it says, and this is only just a little speck in his heaven. <laughs> Do you see? That's one little speck of space in his heaven. And it says in Psalm 147.4, he determines the number of the stars and calls them each by name. <laughs> we don't realize how great he is. We need to understand who it is that has transformed you and called you by his goodness. He is Elohim, the God of all. Hallelujah. He is the creator. He is the one that flung all these things into space. He is the one who grabbed Peter, who we talked about, that was a transformational change. You talk about someone standing up in front of all those people giving a message of Jesus. That wasn't done except by the power of God. Why is it that God does it that way? I want to read I, I want you to turn here with me. First Corinthians chapter one. And I want to start at verse number 22. Why is it that the greatness of God has to be brought about by the way that God has done it? I believe that there's a real purpose. Uh, and I believe that purpose is God knows <laughs> ourselves. God knows if he didn't ask us to just simply be obedient and preach the simple message of Jesus that we would try to complicate it so we could take glory. That's honesty. Our human nature wants glory. Do you understand that? I hope about even yourself because I find it and I say, God, crucify that thing in me. Crucify that thing in me that demands and wants to be elevated, let it die with you on the cross that you would be glorified. And this is why. Let's look. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verse 22 says, For indeed, Jews ask for signs, and Greeks search for wisdom. We preach Christ crucified. 
to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not that he may nullify the things that are, (laughs) that no man should boast before God. That's why God does it the way he does it. Because it's not by might, nor by power, nor by our wisdom, nor by our wonderful way we've put it together. It is by God. Bow your head with me today.